Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, you have a new book out, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Uh, so let me start you with the immediate question that the title suggests, The Second World Wars. Why was it important to have the plural wars there in the title? Uh, for two reasons. One, there had never been a war that was fought in so many places in so many different ways. And by that I mean from the Aleutian Islands to the Indian Ocean, from Manchuria to Wake Island, from the Volga River in Russia all the way to the English Channel, and from Nor the Norwegian Arctic Circle all the way to the Sahara. And in that landscape, that huge landscape, I mean, there wasn't much in common with a guy in a U-boat off Miami versus an American 25,000 feet in a B-17 above Hamburg or uh, somebody in Burma slashing through the jungle vis-a-vis -vis somebody in a tank in North Africa. So in part, it was to show that these were all different wars that really didn't have much connection, at least ostensibly, by that I mean a, a Bulgarian who was fighting for the fascists didn't have much in common with a Japanese soldier in Manchuria. Second was that until from September 1st, 1939 until June 22nd, 1941, there, what we call World War II didn't really exist. It was just called the Polish War, the Danish War, the Norwegian War, the Belgian War, the Dutch War, the Fran Fall of France, the Yugoslavian War, the Greek War. But once Germany invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, on June 22nd, and once Japan attacked both British Singapore and American Philippines and Pearl Harbor, and once Italy and Germany declared war in the United States on December 11th, 1941, then suddenly people said, wow, this is a global war, both in extent and the nature of the combatants. Every nation in the world except 18 would, would join in. So, oddly enough, World War One became World War One, and the Great War was dropped, and these border wars were now, in retrospect, seen as part of a continuum. This book is so rich that we can't really do it justice in a short podcast like this one, and, and everyone who can hear my voice right now just needs to go out and pick up a copy. But let me just have you kind of take us through some of the larger themes of the book, one of which, as you note in the text, is that – I'm quoting you here – the once ascendant Axis powers were completely ill-prepared politically, economically, and militarily to win the global war they had blundered into during 1941, close quote. And maybe we should actually disaggregate that because I'd like to hear how and why they were ill-prepared, but I'm also intrigued by that pregnant verb that they blundered into this war. Explain that. Yeah. Well – they had all been very successful. Even Italy had been successful in uh, Somaliland and Ethiopia. And they had faced down the British in 35 and 36 in the use of the Suez Canal. And then if you, in the aggregate of greater Germany's growth within Germany, the Anschluss, uh, German-speaking territories, the Sudetenland, uh, the Saarland plebiscite, the Rhineland militarization, the Munich, all of that together, then you add into that these nine border wars that Germany fought, they had convinced them, and in Japan, Japan had been equally successful in Manchuria, China, as well as uh, Southeast Asia. When you add all of that together, the Axis powers really did equate 
defeating either backward powers that were not industrialized or neighbors that had easy logistics to their industrial heartland, blitzkrieg, if you will, as a sign of global power. And so they convinced themselves they were invincible, and then they did the unthinkable. I mean, their whole rise was predicated on appeasement of Britain. Britain had appeased them, and the United States had been isolationist, and the Soviet Union had actively colluded with them, and that freed them up to uh, wage preemptive wars on weaker powers. But once they, that pivotal year of 1941, all of that ceased to exist. They surprised, attacked the British, the United States, and the Soviet Union, and then they found themselves against powers whose collective population was 400 million plus. They only had about 170, and whose pride five times larger than their aggregate. So then the question arose is, and that's why I meant sort of a long way of answering your question of blundered, but why did they do such a thing when they were benefiting so much from the Ribbentrop-Molotov non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union and American isolationism? Why didn't they just tiptoe over the Philippines and uh, Pearl Harbor and just snatch Indonesian oil from the non-existent Dutch or um, Vietnamese rice from the non-existent French Empire? And the, and the answer was that they really did believe that... Um, the, their tactical success in the past would prove, prove strategically viable against far greater powers. Either the United States would sue for peace. After all, it hadn't done much to help Britain when it was in flames in 1939 and 40, or just as the Russia had been knocked out in half the time uh, that they were on the Western Front in World War I, so it would be, again, knocked out in half the time uh, that they had knocked out France uh, the prior year. But whatever the calculation, the only thing that mattered in a global existential war is do you have the ability to destroy the enemy's productive capacity and mound power pool? Translated, that means do any of you three fascist powers have a long range, heavy four engine bomber that can bomb Detroit or go across the Union and hit tank factories in the Soviet Union or wipe out Manchester and Liverpool? And the answer was no. Do you have a blue water navy that can challenge the British Navy at sea? Or does Italy and Britain have aircraft carriers that they can stop the Suez Canal? Uh, does Japan have a air cover so that their carrier force can get off the coast of San Diego? And the answer was no. And then, ironically, their enemies all had that ability. When, the, when they declared war on Britain and the United States, both had four-engine bombers and would soon have even better four-engine bombers. They had blue-water navies, and the Soviet Union, as an ally of both of them, could afford to focus on a land war, given that its industrial relocated heartland was beyond the reach of the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht. So it was I, that's what I meant when it was really stupid to do, but psychologically and emotionally they feel, felt that they had been so successful against weaker powers that that translated into intimidating um, the Soviet Union, United States. Regular readers of yours and listeners of the show will know that you don't think that there's a whole lot that's new in human nature. And to that end, I'd like you to expand on this passage in the book where you write, if World War II's unique savagery and destructiveness 
can only be appreciated through the lenses of 20th century ideology, technology, and industry. Its origins and end still followed large contours of conflict as they developed over 2,500 years of civilized history. Trace those contours for us, Victor. Well, usually a war breaks out when one aggressor makes a cost-benefit analysis, whether it's Sparta and the Peloponnesian War, Carthage and the Punic War, or the Ottoman Empire uh, in its war against the Christian League. And they make a cost-benefit analysis that they have more to gain than lose, and that's because the sense of deterrence is lost. In other words, their target or their prey can't harm them enough vis-a-vis the benefits that will accrue. That's just a timeless fact. And that explains why um, Germany and Japan and Italy got themselves into wars, which logically they might not be able to win, these global wars. But understandably, they thought there was a benefit uh, in a cost-benefit analysis because their enemies hadn't shown no prior ability or willingness uh, to seek victory. And then... um, War becomes sort of a laboratory where pre-war assumptions are reified by wartime realities. And then the end of the war sort of tells you who was powerful and who was weak all along. And that was true of World War II um, from the beginning to the end. And then finally, lasting victory is only achieved by the occupation of the homeland and a coerced change in government to... Uh, affinities with the victorious power. That was also true of World War II. Let's talk for a moment about the political leadership during the war. This this may seem like a strange analogy, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me for for a moment here, Victor. In uh, baseball, as the metrics revolution has taken over, one of the statistics that has become fetishized is this measure that's called wins above replacement. You usually hear the acronym WAR. It's this complicated way of quantifying how much value you get from a particular player as opposed to someone else who'd play his position. And I wonder when we look at the major political leaders of World War II, Hitler, FDR, Churchill, Stalin, Mussolini, uh, who comes out well, who comes out poorly in that kind of analysis, that they made contributions that we wouldn't necessarily expect from someone else who had been put in that same position. Yes. Well, I think just to take a few... Uh, because there were six major belligerents and therefore six major supreme commanders. But take Hitler, for example. He had an uncanny animal cunning, and he was able, in a European context, and he'd only been out of Europe one time, and that was not until he was chancellor and and had defeated uh, France in 1940. But he understood the European mentality that the losers of World War One were more eager for war than the complacent victors were. And he understood European logistics, he understood European history, and he understood relative strength. So his gambles to invade Poland or go into the Low Countries or attack Denmark were all rational. But he didn't know anything about the United States. He had not studied the American contribution during World War One. He didn't understand anything about Britain. He'd never been there. He didn't understand that he had neither the Navy or the air power to make it submit. He knew nothing about Winston Churchill's prior career or what the strain of British leadership that Churchill represented. And he had no idea of either uh, Soviet military capability or its industrial potential. He only knew that the Soviets hadn't done well in Poland with him 
They kind of didn't do well in Finland. They didn't do well in arming during the Spanish Civil War, and therefore they would be easy to walk through. So he was a tactically adroit leader within a confined landscape, but entirely clueless in a global landscape. In contrast, Churchill and Roosevelt had traveled the world, and not being in the trenches in World War I turned out advantageous. They were administrators. Churchill had been in the trenches, but as first sea lord of the British Navy, and as uh, Roosevelt being assistant secretary of the Navy during the Wilson administration, they knew how to administer. They knew about budgets. They knew about global blue water navies. They knew about the transportation of men and supply. And they understood how democracies work under wartime conditions. And so uh, the irony was that in the case of the Axis powers, Mussolini and Hitler were quite decorated and brave veterans of World War I that knew combat in the limited frame, but they had no administrative imagination or no experience beyond the confines of Europe. The same and a lesser extent was true of Tojo. He had been on a train through the United States just briefly for a couple of weeks, but other than that, he really hadn't traveled much outside of Germany and the United States, and it was true of most of his command, not all, but most of them. They only knew Japanese culture, and, and if they went abroad, it was into China. And so uh, when Guderian, General Guderian said something to the effect to Hitler that with one SS division, he could uh, repulse the cowboys who would land on Europe, he didn't, that was a very ignorant thing to say because during World War I, two million Americans had landed in 18 months without losing a single American in transit. And by the end of 1918, the Americans were producing more artillery shells than all of the central powers put together. And yet, but Hitler didn't understand any of that, which didn't mean that he was foolish. It just meant that his time had come and gone once uh, he'd achieved his success in border wars, and he was utterly emotionally and rationally and intellectually unfit to fight a global war. The readers who come to this book looking for sort of core military history are, are not going to be disappointed. There are these sweeping sections on aerial and land and naval combat. And then there are some other – there's also a sort of morosely gripping chapter late in the book where you just talk about the scale of the destruction. And you note in there that World War II was the worst human-caused disaster in civilization's history. Now, obviously, a lot of that had to do with scale and technology and the potency of the weapons, but you also say that there was uh, an ideological component uh, to it as well. Uh, quoting you again, this passage, World War II was an ideological war waged in the new age of secular modernism. Connect the dots for us on why that was a contributing factor to the scale of the death and destruction. Well, the Italian army that had fought well in World War I was different than the fascist army of World War II. And the Imperial German army that had fought well in World War I was different than the Nazi army of World War II. And the Japanese that had been allies of the United States and Britain and France in World War I and had followed rules of international conduct in the Russo-Japanese War were not the same as the Japanese militarists. And by all that I mean they had been imbued with a new racialist, whether you call it Volk or Yamoto or Raza, they had been imbued with an idea that 
their racial purity gave them an edge that was not quantifiable or that they had certain blood and soil uh, advantages over the Mongol Americans or the Mongol Soviets. And what that meant was that unlike World War I, to defeat these powers, it was very unlikely that you would be able to tactically force them into an armistice. In other words, if you wanted to defeat Germany or defeat Japan or Italy, you were, they weren't going to give up unless you made war so terrible that they had no choice. And B, you would have to impose an unconditional surrender upon them, not just because they were savage and they were killing millions of civilians, but also they weren't going to change their government unless they were coerced to. And in some ways of the 60 to 65 million people who were killed, the war could be seen on numbers alone, uh, 80, 75 to 80% of that total were civilians, and 80% of that 80% were killed by German and Japanese soldiers, mostly in Eastern Europe, but especially uh, Eastern Europe on the borders with the Soviet Union and within the Soviet Union, of course, in China. So in some ways, this 27,000 people killed every day for six years was a story of Japanese and German soldiers butchering unarmed civilians. And we kind of forget that, that Japan killed about 10 people, or I should say about seven people for every one that it lost. So we have a lot of sympathy because the Japanese were bombed, but we don't really see the Japanese as a killing machine that was absolutely savage and cruel and achieved enormous disparities and losses suffered versus losses inflicted. I'll invite you to close the podcast today by answering the question that serves as the title of the final chapter of your book. Why and what did the Allies win? Yeah, the Allies won not only because they had larger industry, and I, and I mean that in uh, realistic terms. The United States had 45, not only than its enemies, but by its, than its partners put together. American economy produced more goods and services than the Soviet, British, German, Italian, and Japanese economies put together. It had more people. The two largest militaries in the history of warfare were the Soviet at 12 and 12.4 million and the American at 12.1 million. The Americans had almost as much as put together. But more importantly, they, as we said, they had better terms, but the Germans and Japanese never learned to produce as effectively as the Americans or the Soviets or the British. And then finally, um, the Allies had, they, weren't, they were ideologically diverse. I mean, communism, imperialism, democracy versus uniform fascist governments uh, and their enemies, among their enemies. But they all had one great grievance. They had all been surprise attacked by fascists, or in the case of Britain, their ally, Poland, had been surprise attacked. And that gave them a sense of righteous indignation and cooperation. And so they shared expertise, they shared supply, and they shared strategy. So Normandy was, the dates of Normandy were known to Stalin, and Kursk, uh, the strategy of Kursk was known to the Allies. Not that Stalin wasn't duplicitous, but he wasn't as duplicitous during the war as was Hitler vis-a-vis -vis Mussolini vis-a-vis -vis Tojo. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, nobody in Germany knew that it, where it was, much less what it meant. When it, um, Italy went into Dalmatia, Hitler was furious, and yet the Italians were just as furious that Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. They had no idea he was going to do it. 
and that's not even discussing the shared technology or improving one another's arsenal by uh, shared knowledge and research, whereas the Allies, my gosh, whether it was a P-51 or the Firefly Sherman tank, they were always sharing technology, crypt, uh, advances in cryptology and advances in uh, uh, U-boat hunter tactics. And so it's kind of ironic that ideologically similar powers would be so distrustful of each other and disparate uh, allied powers would be so trusting, but that, that's pretty much what happened. All right. Thanks, as ever, to our listeners for tuning in to the Classicist Podcast. As a reminder, Victor's new book is The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Get yourself a copy post-haste. If you enjoy the Classicist Podcast, please rate the show on iTunes, and we'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.